The Mountain Vista Baptist Church podcast features the preaching and teaching of Pastor Robert Perry and the guest speakers of Mountain Vista Baptist. The purpose of this podcast is to help believers grow, to edify the saints, and to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. appreciate that. I want to invite you to take your Bibles with me tonight, and we're going to go to the book of Revelation in chapter number six. Uh, we'll read some here in just a moment, but as uh, we uh, begin here tonight, we'll recap over uh, some of the uh, general things that we've learned thus far through this book of Revelation. And then, of course, we'll recap what we looked at last week as we began to uh, enter into this chapter of chapter number six. And so, to begin with, of course, uh, in chapter 1, verse number 19, uh, Jesus gave John an outline of, how, of what he should write about in this letter or this book. And uh, in chapter 1 and verse number 19, we find the, this outline there simply and plainly. And he says, first and foremost, for John to write about the things he saw. Then he said to write about the things that are and the things that would come after these things. And so we've already discussed, <clears throat> excuse me, how this breaks down. Chapter 1 is uh, the first point there, and that is the things that he saw. Those were the events of the Isle of Patmos and, uh, and uh, the Lord standing before him and, and uh, all of the things that he saw at that point. Then chapters 2 through 3 are the things that are uh, because they are seven letters. Uh, they, those two chapters hold seven letters uh, that were written to seven actual churches in that day, of course. They're in Asia Minor. Uh, but we realize that the implications of those letters also have prophetic meaning for the entirety of what we know as the church age, in which we're still in today. And so therefore, the things that are, are still happening now, as the church is still around and the church is still in this day. And then chapter 4, through the rest of the book, would hold that last point of the outline and the things that are after these things, as we see in chapter 4, verse number 1, the very first part of the verses, after these things. And so we discussed all of that in great detail over the last several weeks, and then of course uh, for a visual to help us see, uh, and, and even going back and applying the things that we've learned in our Daniel study, and uh, the 70 weeks that Daniel teaches about there as well, and uh, we find uh, how that began. There's a little bit of a pause, if you may, the uh, 69 of the weeks have been accomplished, and, and time is still cl- uh, t- uh, pressing forward, and we still have one of those weeks or seven years of, pe- of a period to accomplish. We've already discussed how that last week or those seven years will be the seven years of tribulation, and we've even discussed why we're kind of paused right now, why the weeks aren't continuing to count on. We, we likened it, of course, to that of a basketball game where uh, when someone is fouled, uh, the player goes to the foul line. Uh, the play is actually still continuing on, right? Because the player is actually able to shoot free throws and, and uh, people start to box out as the ball leaves his hand or depending on what league it is, maybe when it hits the rim or whatever, but they begin to uh, fight for a rebound and that clock is still is stopped, it's paused until they, a player touches the ball and then the clock runs again. And of course, when we get down to that last minute of a basketball game, uh, that minute can last a long, long time. I've been watching games before. My wife says, hey, is this game about over? I said, yeah, there's only a minute left. 
and 30 minutes later. You know, uh, but, uh, and so we understand how the game still goes on even though the time is paused. And we can liken what we're experiencing now to that, that uh, Jesus said there would be 70, or the Lord said there'd be 70 weeks. And Daniel, of course, prophesied of that fact. And 69 have been accomplished. And it's as if Jesus called a timeout or if uh, he's paused the clock. And uh, that clock will begin again with that tribulation period. And, and so here towards the end, we discussed, okay, we can't know the time when Jesus is going to come for the rapture. We, we, we understand that. Scripture even says Jesus himself uh, doesn't even know the time or the hour. However, we do know that the Bible gives some signs that were in the last days, some signs that were coming to the end, and, and, uh, and one of those signs, of course, is the fact that, that uh, the rapture will take place, and, uh, and the seven-year tribulation period begins, and, and uh, then we can, of course, start to count down towards His coming uh, for the second time. But here we are, we're in th- things that are, as we mentioned already, the, the church age, the seven lit- letters, uh, prophetically speaking to that end. The church will be resurrected or raptured out, a covenant made between the, uh, this man that will be the Antichrist, which we'll talk more about here tonight even, and uh, the leaders of the Jewish people so that they might be able to uh, reinstate state temple worship and sacrifice again, and that begins the tribulation period. And then at chapter 5, we read about how Jesus takes the scroll or the book from God the Father there on the throne, and he begins to break the seals open to unveil this scroll or this open up this book. And these events that, uh, uh, him breaking the seal begins events that take place on earth. And we started with that uh, last week, which we'll recap more in just a moment. So we see the scrolls beginning to open, and uh, that involves the things that are after for Israel. So we discuss, is there a way that we can know what, how we're close to this point where the church raptures out and the tribulation is going to begin? Well, we said there's several uh, different things, nine particular uh, instances or uh, nine particular signs that the Lord gives that tells us that we're to- approaching the end of when uh, the Lord's second coming would take place. We said five of them have already been able to take place, that world wars, increasing famine, famines, increasing earthquakes, church apostasy, Israel regathering in the land. And we said that Jesus actually likened that to what? Birthing pains, remember that? And uh, the beginning of sorrows, as we said, Scripture said. And, and, uh, and any lady who's had a, a child understands that the labor process starts Maybe mild, if I can put it that way. I don't want to diminish any of that, of course. But it, of course, grows in its intensity and severity. And, uh, and those contractions, they grow in their uh, frequency as well. And so we're not saying that all of these have been completely accomplished, but I believe they've begun. And we've seen them already begin to uh, increase in uh, severity, increase in uh, frequency as well, and it's just going to get worse and worse as we get closer. So there's four left that have to take place before God, Christ returns the, for the second coming, not the rapture, but the second coming, and uh, of course the rapture being one of them. Uh, Daniel taught in t- chapter 2 and 7 that ten kings would be ruling. As I mentioned earlier, a covenant will be signed with Israel. Daniel 9 teaches that as well. That will begin the tribulation period, and Elijah, of course, there in Malachi 4, as we read uh, several weeks ago as well. 
Now, we said the tribulation period, those, that seven years, uh, it can be broken up into three segments. And the first three and a half years, the first half of tribulation, we find in Revelation 6 through 9. The last half in Revelation 16 through 19, which most commonly is referred to as great tribulation. And then there's a moment uh, right in the middle of it. It doesn't necessarily span years, but it's a, it's a segment of time, and we'll talk more about that, how that's true when we get there, but that's found in Revelation 10 through 15, and uh, there's the events that, hold it, that are found in each of them as well, as we looked at a little bit last week, just mentioned them for the sake of time, we won't recap re, re, uh, all of those here tonight. And so we're going to be looking at this scroll being opened, and we actually started looking at the beginnings of this last week with uh, the first uh, seal being broken. And so let's read uh, to jump into things. We'll, we'll look at that first seal being broken there at the beginning of chapter number six and recap as we did last week, and we'll get into the next three here tonight, Lord willing. And so look at verse number one with me, Revelation 6, verse number one. And I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder. Somebody shout out loud what thunder means in the book of Revelation. Judgment, that's correct, and somebody was paying attention in the last several weeks, and so uh, I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals and heard, as it were, the noise of thunder, one of the four beasts saying, come and see, and I saw, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat on him had a bow, and a crown was given unto him, and he went forth conquering and to conquer. When he had opened the second seal, I heard the second beast say, come and see, there went out another horse that was red, and power was given to him that sat thereon to take, uh, take peace from the earth, and that they should kill one another. And there was given unto him a great sword. In verse number five, it says, And when he had opened the third seal, I heard the third beast say, Come and see. And I beheld, and lo, a black horse, and he that sat on him had a pair of balances in his hand. And uh, I heard a voice in the midst of the four beasts say, A measure of wheat for a penny. Three measures of barley for a penny, and I see thou uh, hurt uh, and see thou hurt not the oil and the wine. And when he had opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth beast say, "Come and see." And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and his name that sat on him was Death, and Hell followed him. And power was given unto him uh, unto them over the fourth part of the earth to kill with sword and with hunger and with death and with beast of the earth. Our Father, we thank you for this evening. We thank you for the opportunity to be able to be here tonight and to gather together with your people. Uh, we thank you for all that is taking place, for the volunteers that are helping in other places as well, uh, so that others might be able to worship you. And Lord, I ask now that as we study your word, that you give me the word to speak as I deliver the message here tonight, uh, that we just be drawn closer to you as we see your plan unfolding and as we see your, uh, you at work uh, not only here and now, but how you will be at work in the future. Lord, we praise you and thank you for the fact that uh, you, you promised that we as believers are, are uh, not reserved for the wrath to come. And uh, so, Lord, I ask now that you just help us to take this time so that we might be able to know your will and to, to know your plan, that we might be able to encourage others to uh, come to know you as their Savior if they don't already. And uh, Lord, I ask that you should be unglorified through this time, and that your will be accomplished, and we ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. And so last week, as we began to look at this introduction into this tribulation period, these seals broken, remember, we said that with every seal that is broken, 
an event begins to take place here on earth. And so John is in the heavenly throne room. He's in the presence of Christ, and Christ begins to open up the scroll, begins to break open the seals. And every time he breaks a seal, an event takes place here on this earth, just like every time I press this clicker, uh, something happens on the screen there. And so a similar situation. I'm glad it worked, right? But uh, for the sake of the illustration. Uh, but the, every time Christ opens the seal, something happens here. And so we looked at the first one open last week. And we said, number one, we ought to be aware of God's weapon of deception. If we look at verses one and two, we find this man on a horse come, uh, come uh, onto the scene. And, and we said we, un- we have to understand that this deception that is going to be seen and that is taking place is all underneath, actually, the Lord's control. This one that comes onto the scene is not coming in his own power. He doesn't, in fact, he has no authority, which we'll talk about in just a moment as, as we recap. Uh, but this is all part of God's plan and his allowance for this man to bring the final judgment upon, uh, as we know it, the Jewish people. We've already discussed why that is to be the case, and we won't take the time to recap all of that. I want to encourage you, if you do have any questions, feel free to ask after services, but if you have any questions also, be sure to go back and listen to prior lessons as uh, they're available on Facebook or YouTube or through podcast uh, services as well, and uh, all the way back even through the book of Daniel. You can go back and check those there. But we find that the Bible says here in verse number two, and I saw and he uh, and behold a white horse, and he that sat on him had a bow, and crown was given unto him. And so we said, who is this rider? We've, we've got to figure out who is on this white horse, who has this bow in his hand, who is ultimately given a crown to go forth to conquer, conquering and to conquer. And we said sometimes people uh, unintentionally, and, and, and I mean, they're not trying to misinterpret Scripture. Uh, they're applying what they know uh, from later verses in Revelation, that Jesus comes on a white horse, and so therefore just assume that this must be Jesus. However, as we look at the events that are unfolding and what is actually being said here in context, we understand that it's absolutely not Jesus. We went back to Daniel to look at that and figure that out as well. But we said that this deception that's under God's control is a deception that is given so that this one can conquer. Notice that it says at the last part of verse number two that he went forth conquering and to conquer. And it's deceptive because he has a bow in his hand, but the scripture never says anything about him having any arrows. Now, if I were to have a pistol in my hand and to point it in your face, you would probably think that I have bullets in it. And whether or not it's loaded and ready to go or not, it's still going to concern you that this pistol is pointed in your face. And in similar fashion, this man comes with a bow in his hand. And he doesn't, it's not said that he has any arrows, but the fact that he has a bow, it's assumed that he has arrows that's going to bring war and pain and, and fighting and such. And so because of that, and because of the fact that he's also able to broker this great peace deal between the Middle East and the people of God, the Jewish people, people are like, this is somebody that's important. We need to follow him. And so we find that Although he had no power of his own, and actually he had no right to authority at all, uh, we find that people freely give him that authority. Notice in verse number two again that it was the crown was given unto him. Now, this crown that was given unto him was not one that was was because of an inheritance or because he was royalty uh, or grew up royalty. That word crown in the Greek, if that were to be the case, it would have been the word diadem. 
That would have been, meant that he deserved the power, that deserved the royalty. But this word crown is actually the word Stephanos in Greek, which is meaning that it was given to him as a payment or something that he had earned. Just like we, taught, we learned that uh, when uh, we as believers will stand before Christ, we will be given crowns based off of our service for the Lord as well, as we've already discussed those things in, in weeks prior. But we, we, of course, came to the conclusion that this man that is just simply referred to as he in verse number two is no doubt the Antichrist. And this is the beginning of his, uh, of his world career, his world domination, at least for seven years anyways. And so we said, is there anything else that we could learn about him? So we looked at some of the terms and, of course, uh, focused specifically on that term that John uses of Antichrist. We also learned that, the, that the, uh, there is an uh, antichrist, an ultimate one, the, the uh, penultimate one, if you want, may, that uh, uh, will come in the future, this one that we're reading about here. But John specifically says that there are other antichrists, even in the world as we speak. Uh, there, anyone that is opposed to God, anyone that denies that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, uh, John said, is an antichrist. And so uh, even Paul says that in the, that the last days, these tri- this tribulation time, uh, cannot come until that man of lawlessness, the uh, son of perdition, uh, is to come. And so we know already, Paul's already discussed, and other places have discussed that this man's end is foretold. It's also foretold by Daniel. And since we know that he's destroyed by the arrival of Jesus at the end of this seven-year period, we are left with the question, if there's antichrists in the world and the tribulation can't begin until the antichrist, the ultimate one, is is bursting onto the, the scene, then why hasn't it happened already? Well, we said the scripture teaches that there's a restrainer. There's one that's holding back all these events, and that is, of course, the Holy Spirit, as we discussed last week. And so we discussed this first horse, that first seal being broken open, and uh, we saw, of course, that that brought a man riding a white horse with a bow. He's given a crown, and of course, that is the beginning of the Antichrist's um, uh, career here on this earth as he progresses through the tribulation period. But I want you to know, secondly with me here tonight, and this is brand new material that we did not get into last week, uh, but secondly, let me say that we ought to be aware of God's weapon of war. As we look at verse 3, it says, and when he had opened the second seal, I heard the second beast say, come and see. And there went out another horse that was red, and power was given to him that sat thereon to take uh, peace from the earth, and that they should uh, kill one another, and there was given unto him a great sword. And so, nevertheless, we've seen here already tonight as we've recapped that uh, the tribulation, otherwise we've seen known as the day of the Lord, is underway, and we've learned all that this, uh, that this, uh, that this period of history is fast approaching as we've already recapped. Daniel told us that there is uh, 70 weeks um, And uh, that last week, that seven-year period, it has to take place, and that's going to be during this tribulation period. Jesus opened the first seal, and and, uh, it, uh, it, it unleashed the events of that man coming on the white horse. Well, here we see as he opens the second seal, as we get into verse 3 and 4, that a, uh, a, as he breaks open that second seal, another horse uh, shows up on the scene. 
And like the first seal, the opening of the second seal brings John's vision uh, to look down to earth. I want you to notice that with me there in verse number three. And when he had opened the second seal, I heard the second beast say, come and see. So don't miss the transitions here as we go back and forth. In verse number one, John is in heaven. He is with Christ. Uh, Christ breaks open the seal. One of the beasts say, come and see. What he's saying is, draw your attention down to earth to the events that are taking place. Verse number two describes the events that are taking place. Then in verse number three, we're not on earth any longer. We're back in the heavenly throne room. John with Jesus. Jesus breaking open the second seal. And then as he breaks open the second seal, notice that the beast or the angel says once again, come and see. So it, it's back and forth, back and forth. It's like a scene of a movie. Uh, it's cutting and going back and forth and so on. And so make sure you don't miss that part as we go along, of course, here tonight. The horse, though, that is, that is mentioned here in verse number three, or, or verse number four, I should say, rather, is uh, it has a different symbol or symbolizes something different uh, than the first horse did. And that will be a, become apparent as we continue to move along, and all of these horses symbolize something different. First, we saw the white horse the right, and a rider. It symbolized the arrival of the Antichrist on the, the world stage. Um, it conveyed the man's initial effect that he would gain power, that he would threaten war and intimidate other leaders as well. Uh, the horse um, was a symbol that communicated the arrival of uh, something or the case of someone uh, similarly, here the horse on the second seal also communicates the arrival of an event that is going to start taking place here on this earth. Uh, but the fact that it's another horse suggests that we should see these horses as connected, as the events that progress with each other. Um, and so well, let me say as we consider this here tonight, that as we consider the fact that we ought to be aware of God's weapon of war, this destruction is inevitable. It's not going to be able to be missed. And the second horse, the Bible says, is red. And, um, and so the co color of that represents, of course, bloodshed. And verse number four will tell, that, tell us that the effect of the horse and its rider is to take peace from the earth. And so just like the first horse, the second horse, and the solo rider, uh, he comes in with a weapon in his hand. The first one was with a bow, and it was kind of deceptive that he had authority or had power to make war, but he didn't really have the power yet. But now people of the earth have given him the power, and so he now actually does have the military might and the opportunity to bring war and to actually bring peace. And we know that there's only one Antichrist in the tribulation, so that leaves us to conclude that this second writer is not a second person. But this is periods or stages of the Antichrist's um, promotion, if you wanted to say it that way, through his career through these seven years. It's the same person that we saw on the first horse, the Antichrist, and he's progressing in his power along the way. The first seal brought him onto the world stage, and now this second seal is, is, just, is, is, is bringing him ever so closer to the ultimate power that he will hold here. And, uh, and we'll see that men are slaying one another, it says, and a world war erupts and so on and so forth. If another world war doesn't take place between now and there, then, then, uh, then we'll call it World War III for the sake of, of, uh, of simplification here tonight. But notice here that the destruction is, 
is inevitable, but also this destruction is immense. Because notice that this uh, man, he says he's coming to conquer and the conquer in verse number two. And uh, as the second seal is open, we find the Antichrist begins to consolidate his power and begins to prosecute war on the world. Uh, he leads the world into a widespread war and bloodshed and and uh, we, 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 we see, we'll conclude the seals more as we move into chapter 7, but we'll get to that in just a moment. But notice verse number 4 again. Verse number 4, it says that he'd take away peace from the earth, that he should, they would kill one another, that there would be given unto him a great sword. So this man, that when he comes onto the scene, he, was, he came being deceptive, seeming as if he had some power that he didn't really have. And because he was deceptive in his work, he was able to convince the Middle Eastern people and the Jewish people to make a peace deal, uh, broker a peace deal, so that the Jewish people could reinstate um, uh, temple worship and sacrifice there in the temple again and have the ability to go into the temple mount and so on and so forth. And so it seems as if this man, when he starts to rise to fame, is bringing something good. Peace, right? I mean, that's what we all want. We, all, we would want peace to be able to be accomplished. We want to live at peace, and, and uh, we want peace in this world, no doubt. But we see this man who came, on, uh, came onto the scene proclaiming peace that ultimately, before everything's said and done, is going to be the result of mass chaos and a lack of peace. And that is what is we find taking place as the second seal is, uh, un, uh, is broken open. But each time, notice that we're talking about be aware of God's weapon of war and be aware of God's weapon of deception. Understand this tonight, that all of these things that are taking place are underneath God's control. That he, he has the power here and he has the plan and, and what is being accomplished is under his authority. And so thirdly here, so, we, so far tonight we've seen that the, the white horse, the first seal, white horse with a bow, and a, he's given a crown, equals a military leader bringing threats of war. But then as a second seal is broken open, we find that it's a red horse, represented by a red horse, given a sword, and this is the onset of widespread war and bloodshed. Now thirdly tonight, notice with me that we ought to be aware of God's weapon of famine. In verses 5 and 6, it says, when he had opened the third seal, I heard the third beast say, come and see. And I beheld, and lo, a black horse, and he that sat on him had a pair of balances in his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four beasts say, a measure of wheat for a penny and a measure of barley for a penny, and see thou hurt not the, hurt not the oil and the wine. So Jesus continues opening the edges of the scroll, breaking open the seals, and uh, this, uh, uh, this next seal is separated from the binding here. And as it's starting to break loose, it leads to another phase of events taking place here on the earth. And uh, once more, we find here in verse number uh, 5, it says, I heard the, voice, uh, the third beast say, what? Come and see. And so we see this progression again. He's in the heavenly throne room. The beast says, well, come and see what's happening on earth after the first seal is broken. Then they're back in the heavenly throne room, and the second seal is broken, and the beast says, come and see what's happening down on earth. Now those events are unfolding, and John's back in the throne room, and Jesus breaks the third seal, and the, the third beast says, come and see. And then he looks down and sees all this. Again, this rider is unnamed. He referenced only by the pronoun he as we look there. 
And as we learn uh, in the earlier two horses, the continuing use of a pronoun means that this character, I don't believe, has changed. So therefore, it is still the same individual, just a progression in his career here through the, uh, the uh, tribulation period, the Antichrist. And so we're still looking at the impact that the Antichrist has here on the earth and uh, as he climbs the ladder of power, if you may, as well. This time, though, we find something particular about the, uh, the horse, that the color of this horse is black. And like the red and the white horses, the color symbolizes something. And so beginning with what this man on the black horse uh, uh, is carrying, we notice that he's carrying scales. And so, or, or it says balances there in uh, verse number five. So we have a black horse and a man that is holding balances or scales. Now, uh, if I use the term scale, you might think like the weight scale that we stand on in the morning and we shake our head and say, my resolution is not going well. Uh, but that is not the type of scale or balance that is being spoken of here. It's probably more traditionally towards this end here like we see uh, on the screen. And, uh, but as we consider the, the meaning of this, what we said we're, we're remembering that we ought to be aware of God's weapon of famine. Now, this famine is going to be unstoppable because look at what the Bible says in verse number 5. As he beheld that black horse... And the one that sat on him with the balances in his hand. It says in verse number six, I heard a voice in the midst of the four beasts say, A measure of wheat for a penny, and a measure of barley for a penny, and see that, that hurt not the oil and the wine. So, this balance is not something that we necessarily use on a regular basis in our culture today. In fact, if you look at that, there's probably a symbol that you think of that uses that, and that would be like the. Um, the, um, uh, the balances of justice, the scales of justice, and uh, the, the um, uh, unconditional, the, un, uh, the uh, uh, thought of, of justice being held out. The problem is, is that is not the context that is being spoken of here. It's not talking about justice or judgment that is going to be accomplished necessarily. Uh, we need to look more at what this symbol would have been used for in those days. Now, in those days, the uh, monetary system was based on the bartering of goods whose value was going to be established by a weight. And so if you went into the public marketplace in those days uh, and uh, you went and looked at uh, whatever you needed, whether it be fish or whether it be bread or whether it be some tool or an instrument or anything that you needed to purchase, you would stand and barter with that one and you would uh, come to a conclusion on the price and then they would bring whatever you're using for the payment to the scale to be able to weigh it. The reason for that was because, um, because what, the, those coins or any type of, of uh, uh, precious stone or whatever that might be used to be able to, to weigh it out, if they just handed it over, a person could shave off a corner of it. And uh, then next thing you know, it's actually decreasing in its value the material that the coin was made out was what made it valuable, not the coin itself. And so as it lost weight, it decreased in value. So if you said, hey, in, in our monetary system here today, if you said, well, I'll sell you this for a penny and half of it's missing, it, that penny's not really worth what it 
seem to be worth. And the same thing then. And so to be able to know for sure that it was, they were getting the full price of what they had agreed to, they would take something that they already knew was the correct uh, weight of what that, that coin or those coins should have been, put it on one side of the scale, put the money or that, or that was being used to purchase the thing on the other side, and if it balanced out, then everything was good and the transaction was completed. Are you following with me here to, tonight? And so we find here that the scale represents that. Now, the, uh, how does that apply to famine? Well, this famine's unstoppable, but, all, uh, unstoppable, but also knows that this famine is, is unbearable. Because verse number six gives us some insight. It says, a measure of wheat uh, for a penny and three measures of barley for a penny. And so the effect of this great world war that is going to take place that began with the opening of the second uh, scroll and, or seal, I should say, and that red horse and the sword that was given in his hand, uh, of course, naturally uh, affects the supply of goods and decreases the amount that are available and increases how much they're being sold for. We see the price increase reflected clearly here in verse number six as we read. And John is told here that in, in verse number six, I should say, that a measure of wheat would cost a penny. Now, that word penny, we would probably just assume because we know what a penny is today for us. Those little bronze coins, right, or copper coins that we have that uh, we carry around in our pockets or we pass over on the sidewalk as I talked about on Sunday night and such. But that type of a penny wasn't even around back in John's day, and so we have to come to a conclusion to have a better idea of what we're talking about. What was John saying? Well, that, that uh, word penny in the Greek was translated from the word denarius. A denarius was first introduced in 211 B.C., and it contained 4.5 grams of silver. And uh, so when we consider what John is saying, that a a, um, a measure of wheat would cost a penny, we could understand it to mean that it was uh, roughly the equivalent of 4.5 grams of silver. Now, that was also roughly the price or the, uh, or the wage of a day laborer in the first century Rome, and uh, so therefore they would earn roughly one denarius per day before any taxes were taken from them. So in John's day, a denarius bought more than uh, or bought around 12 quarts or 12 measures of wheat and 36 quarts or 36 measures of barley. So one denarius, 4.5 grams of silver, would purchase all of this in John's day. All right, that's what they would be able to buy. So we could say it this way, that a, a quart or a measure of wheat would produce about a loaf and a half of bread. Uh, or enough to feed a family for a day. So a, so a poor family could, su could uh, sustain for almost two weeks on one denarius worth of wheat, or even longer if they were to um, be conservative in their cons consumption. By comparison, therefore, a, a, labor a laborer working a minimum wage today uh, you would probably say we earn somewhere around $80 or so a day before taxes. So a day's wage today, if spent frugally, could support a family with sustenance of food for several days, maybe even a week or more, just like it was comparable to that day as, we as well. However, here's what Scripture is telling us in verse number 6. 
that in the time of the tribulation under the Antichrist, the world will run away or experience runaway inflation of even the basic of goods. As a result of the Antichrist's war that is, comes from the breaking open of the second seal, a denarius will only be able to buy roughly about one and a half loaves of bread or one measure uh, of, uh, of wheat or barley. And so, therefore, we could conclude that in that day, based off of all that is being said, we can estimate that a loaf of bread would therefore cost roughly $60. So, if you could imagine that if you had to pay, work an entire day just for a loaf and a half of bread, how hungry people are really going in those days. And the famine is so widespread. And so this black horse symbolizes the death of many from war-induced hyperinflation and the resulting of a global starvation. But before we, we trace this event to the opening of a seal as the Lord permits these judgments to come, I mean, before uh, we trace it, we, 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 we see that these events come from the opening of a seal as the Lord permitted the judgment to come on the world. We already discussed that. Uh, interestingly enough, two products are specifically excluded from these high prices, though, wines and oils. Now, it's not clear why these are excluded, and many have speculated as to why it is. One, interest, one uh, answer could be this, that these are the chief crops that are found in Israel, and so therefore, they, and they, because they come from olives and they come from grapes, uh, or they are found roughly, you know, greatly in Israel, therefore it may indicate that the land of Israel is being spared from some of this great warfare and some of this great famine that is going to take place. That makes sense since the Antichrist's rise to power comes from an agreement with Israel, no doubt. But that's neither here nor there. Others have said, you know, who is going to be able to afford oil and wine? That's the, most, the world's most elite, and, and, uh, and maybe because of who he is, the Antichrist, controlling the world, and, and so on and so forth. Nevertheless, that's neither here nor there. Just an interesting note there. But we find that a, a result of this this. this uh, the scroll being opened and the seal being broken, the third one, here comes this black horse. And this black horse carries with it a, a great famine because of the war that brought, uh, brought um, uh, lessened supplies and the war that it brought hyperinflation as well. But as we close tonight, notice fourthly, as we look at this fourth, um, this, this, uh, fourth seal that is broken open, that we ought to be aware of God's weapon of death as well. Verses 7 and 8, And when he had opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth beast say, Come and see. So again, he had, John had looked at the events on earth. Now he's back in the throne room. He, uh, Jesus opens the fourth seal on this scroll, uh, and the beast says, Come and see. And he says in verse number 8, And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and his name that sat on him was death, and hell followed with him. And power was given unto them over the fourth part of the earth to kill with sword and with hunger and with death and with the beast of the earth. So this fourth seal brings one more horse with a rider on it as well. We know that we're still looking at this step-by-step -step progression, the impact of the Antichrist and his arrival. But the horse changes pattern slightly in its description as we see here because the first three had just the pronoun he. 
This time it says that the name of the one that rides, rides on it is death, followed by hell or Hades. Now we find that we, we have to understand that this death, as we've seen in all things, is controlled. That this is not just willy-nilly, that this is accomplished and allowed even by our Lord as He's un unraveling and unveiling his, his judgment upon the earth in these last days. But we, we remember the, the pattern that had been established in the first three seals. Each horse with the represented something that uh, the Antichrist would accomplish on earth. The nature of the horse and the other symbols reflected its impact, and each subsequent horse builds on the prior horse as well. The rider of the fourth horse, though, it says, is death with, with hell following. Obviously, though, death and hell are, are not people, but rather death is a condition and hell, hell is a place. So the logical interpretation as we study through this here tonight is that the final horse is that we're seeing, with this final horse, is that we're seeing the final and ultimate effect of the Antichrist's rise to power. He's going to bring widespread death upon the entirety of the earth. The effect of the death for the unsaved, unbelieving earth is an eternity into hell. We find this death is controlled, but this death is also comprehensive as we look at verse number 8 also. That conclusion that we just said that the effect of this death for the unsaved is the ultimate resting place in hell is supported by this horse's color as we find in verse number 8. He says, I looked and behold a pale horse. Now, this horse's color is described as pale. It's the word chloros in the Greek, which uh, it's where we get our word chlorophyll and, and so on and so on forth. It's literally, if we wanted to literally say it, we could say it'd be green like the pale green color of a dead corpse. Uh, in that form or fashion, and so that's what he's speaking of here. And so we, uh, we kind of can picture it, that pale green uh, um, uh, color. And, uh, of course, this is not the natural color of a horse. So, therefore, it symbolizes something, and uh, it, re it represents the stench and the rot of many dead bodies that are left unburied. Listen to me. Think about what has gone on even in this last two years with COVID that they were not even able to put people in morgues. They weren't able, able to bury people fast enough, so they're having to rent refrigerated trucks and put bodies and stack them in there and such. Imagine 25% of the world's population being eliminated at one time. A fourth of the world, it says. I'm telling you, bodies are going to be stacked and piled everywhere. And that's what this horse is representing, and, and it's representing the, the stench and the rod of these dead bodies left unburied. And secondly, in verse number 8, we're told that the overall toll of the war, uh, famine and pestilences, results uh, from the war, it leaves a fourth of humanity dead. By today's population count, we're talking nearly 2 billion people dying at one time, or in a, in a span of time anyways. By comparison, the highest estimate of the dead in World War I was roughly 22 million people. In World War II, roughly 56 million people died. Compare the, that, that, that toll of death to what we're seeing here in this great world war that's taking place in the tribulation with nearly 2 billion people, if not more, dis, uh, destroyed in a period of time. Clearly, the next war will result in an unimaginable devastation just like 
Jesus' birthing pains, as he spoke about, suggests. So these deaths are the result of the culmination of the first four seals of judgment, as we uh, have explained through these first eight verses. We find that, uh, that these, uh, the, each of them uh, uh, representing different things and different things that would take place and the cause and the effect relationship of the Antichrist world of power is actually, as he rises, is actually a, a decline uh, for those in the world in that day. It says in verse number 8 that uh, power was given unto him to kill with the first part of the earth with a sword. Uh, I believe that's speaking of war, which was, of course, the first and second seals. It says in verse number 8 that after, I'm sorry, yeah, yeah, verse number 8, that after the sword he would be with hunger, so a famine, that's the result of the war, and that was the, found in the third seal as we just discussed. And then it says also with hunger and with death, I believe that's going to be the pestilence or diseases that follow after famine and war, which is part of this fourth seal. But notice even that part of what kills off these people, not just war, not just um, great hunger, not just the diseases that come from the fact that these people can't feed and get, sustain themselves properly, but also the last part of this in verse number eight, it says, and with the beast of the earth. The animals are so starving for, for food themselves that they're attacking the people of the earth at that time as well. So looking back on these four judgments, we see there on the screen as well, they're obviously connected together, uh, almost as a group, if you may. All are brought in similar fashion with a symbolic horse, and each judgment builds naturally upon the prior. From the perspective of those living on earth during this period, the events will appear to be entirely natural in their origins. It will seem as if it's just normal occurrences, uh, just like we see things taking place today. Well, I mean, that's just what's happening. That's just life. But we understand that these are all ultimately brought forth by the, the allowance of our Lord to bring to this culmination this last seven weeks, or these, seven, these last seven years, this last week, I should say, these seven years of the period that will ultimately usher in His second coming. See, we understand that the, these are the results of the Lord's judgments. And as he opens each scroll, the world will feel these things and soon recognize and realize that they're ultimately from God. Even the number of the horses, four, tell us something about God's purpose. Uh, a lot of times people associate the number four uh, with uh, uh, the, the, the number four is the number of the earth in scriptures that they associate it. So the first four judgments are designed to look like earthly events, not necessarily heavenly judgments, but they are ultimately God pouring out and working out His judgment upon those in this time. Now, why do we study these events? After all, we're not going to be here, right? Why, why do we take the time to study it? Well, first and foremost, we've already seen in Revelation 1, there's a blessing for those who study this word of prophecy. But also, we have to realize that anyone that is left behind after Christ uh, raptures out his, the church are going to be prone to experiencing these things. And I wouldn't want anyone to experience any of this judgment. Of course, we know that it's ultimately reserved to uh, impact Israel, but it's going to be on the entirety of the earth. And so therefore, 
Everyone that is alive is going to be impacted by it. I don't say that by any means to try to bring some type of fear or, or, or leave you up at night or anything like that, because if you know Christ is your Savior, there's nothing to worry about. Amen. But we do need to allow this to motivate us to be the witness that we ought to be so that we, ought, might, ought, uh, that we might be able to share the love of Christ that would, would, would save anyone from this type of judgment. And that's why we study what we study is to help motivate us to do what we can do to help impact the kingdom. Our Father, we thank you for this evening. And uh, God, I just ask now that you help us to take what we've learned tonight and to realize these aren't events that are just coming haphazardly, that they're not events that just kind of happen because, well, this thing happened and that thing happened. But Lord, these are events that you've already planned out and that you, we know will ultimately come to fruition, and that you have your hand in. Well, it's the Antichrist that seemingly here on this earth starts to bring all of these things to fruition and get the ball ro rolling. We know it's only underneath your allowance. In fact, it's begun by every breaking of those seals that you open up. Lord, I ask now that you'd help us to be drawn closer to you because of our time in your word, that we would worship you and glorify you for who you are, that you, uh, you are a great God and that you are in control. And Lord, I ask now that you'd have your will in your way as we've studied your word here, word here tonight. Hear our requests as we bring them before you here in just a moment. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.